Welcome to Fertile Minds Radio. Here you'll find wisdom for your fertility journey and beyond, chosen specifically to help you trust your body and elevate your spirit so you can enjoy the process. Join us and see what a fertile mind feels like. Now your host, Hilary Talbot Rowland. Welcome back to another installment of Fertile Minds Radio. I'm your host, Hilary Talbot Rowland. And today in episode 14, I have the lovely Dawn Herring back, uh, owner and creator of Empowered Birth Series. And we're going to talk about placentas pushing in the fourth trimester. Some of my favorite subjects that are um, pretty, pretty hot topics right now, especially when it comes to placentas in that fourth trimester that nobody tells you about. So what I absolutely love about Dawn is that we favor the same approach when it comes to labor. Like myself, she very much wants to change the conversation about doing fertility and labor into one about allowing something to unfold in the manner that it was intended to. We both know that this is easier said than done, but that education is a key to empowering a woman to trust her body and feel more comfortable in the allowing process. So that's part of why we're here today. If you didn't get a chance to listen to our first interview, you can find that at ladypotions.com backslash episode 11, and I highly, highly encourage you to give that one a listen. It's long, but oh so informative. We talk about the importance of breath and movement and how to recover if you've gone through a birth that was anything less than empowering, how to engage your physicians in a meaningful and authentic conversation right out of the gate in pregnancy to help build a team approach. And that helps to get your baby here safely and in a way which feels empowering to you and your partner. We talk about the phases and stages of labor for which there is a downloadable PDF in that episode and those show notes and why labor rehearsals can help take the fear out of labor and actually help you go into labor naturally. We start the conversation on intervention, which we are going to finish today. We're also going to talk about placentas, like I said before. (laughs) So let's do this. Welcome back, Dawn. So happy to have you. How are you? I'm good. I'm so good. How are you? Good. How was your holiday? Was, did you eat a lot of turkey and sweet yummies? Yes. I will say yes and no. I, I'm pretty proud of myself because I didn't go too crazy on the sweets because um, that's definitely my my downfall. Um, but I made some cute little cupcakes with my kiddos and decorated them to look like the tail of a turkey. Um, which making them and decorating them is actually probably more fun than eating them. So it was great. Good. I, you know, I, we did the same thing. We tried to stay like, um, as keto paleo as possible. And, um, you know, it was my job to make the desserts that the children would like where there was not a revolt and, uh, (laughs) they did like them. Um, but I'm, I have to say, I probably ate like half a jar of coconut oil and honey in a week. <laughs> so probably not the best. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm going to out myself there. I, I, that's what I did. <laughs> I have never tried that. So you might have just, um, you might have just inspired something. <laughs> I didn't have any Pinterest fails. So I was really excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Same here. My turkey actually looked like a turkey and not, you know, <laughs> some sort of awesome. alien. <laughs> yeah. So... I'm I'm so happy that you've come back for part two. And, you know, we, after we recorded episode one, we were just chatting because we're kind of in birth love with each other. <laughs> and um, 
we, we tried to save it for this episode, but you know, one of the conversations that we got in that I think was really important for our listeners was about how our perceptions around birth, um, natural, hospital, or otherwise have really changed in the last five to 10 years from our experiences. And I really want to share that with our listeners today. I think that there is this misconception about it all being kind of all or nothing when it comes to natural versus hospital or intervention. And we really want to change that from a dogmatic conversation into a welcoming, more open conversation, because we know that this will help women feel less shame when a birth hasn't gone the way they envisioned, which rarely happens. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And and just in the kind of spirit that every woman is different and every birth is different, you know, every baby's entrance is different, even to the same mom. So, you know, Don, you said something that was really interesting about your own righteous view that the universe magically morphed for you. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. So if you, if I look back at my personal journey And I think I mentioned in the last episode, my daughter, she'll be five in January and my son will be four in February. So five-ish, six-ish years ago when I got pregnant with Savannah, um, I knew inside me that for me, a hospital birth was not where I wanted to be. Um, I just knew that intuitively. That was an authentic choice for me. Um, And that laboring, you know, I I found my way to a birth center um, here in, um, in Largo at at Breath of Life. And that was my choice. (laughs) However, when I look back at who I was then and my opinions on birth and just how I was about it, even in conversations with, with women at the time that were in my circle, work colleagues that were also considering, you know, um, getting pregnant or even were pregnant, I was so righteous and positional about how every single woman is phenomenally capable of having a natural childbirth and that's what they should do. And if they were talking about an epidural, even before they had, you know, even ever had childbirth, I would, I was so flabbergasted by that because to me, I'm thinking, you don't even know what this is going to look like. And you're already thinking that you need pain medication and you're selling out on yourself and you can hear, right? All of these swirls of thoughts. And that's just who I was about it at the time. Um, And I think some of that had to do with, I think my own somewhat judgments where I was grounded in that I wanted a natural childbirth, I think I had to be, I felt somewhat like defensive about that because I knew it wasn't necessarily the norm. Um, and that a lot of women, you know, there was this whole conversation. Well, if you do it natural, you know, you're crazy, right? Or where some people say, if you do it natural, you're a goddess. You know, there was just all of this stuff around it. And though it was a very authentic knowingness inside of me, I still think I was dealing with how to really be with that you know, kind of out in the world. And so what showed up was that sort of righteous, judgmental, you know, kind of opinion about birth for all women. Now, you fast forward to my birth experiences. And as I mentioned, I I did have two natural childbirths, both water births at the birth center, but I had complications and I was sent to the hospital and I was terrified in the hospital environment because I was so stuck within, I think, you know, what I thought my my births and birth experiences were going to look like. And as I've journeyed over the few years in terms of healing some of that and, and having conversations with other women about their experiences, 
I realized how much that judgment, A, didn't have a place in my own life and well-being, nor did it need to have a place really, you know, in anybody else's life, any other women's lives, especially coming from me, but in general, just as a conversation around something that is so meaningful and important as our birth experiences. So, you know, now I can say that as I am in, you know, my classes teaching, I'm, I'm really finding myself able to present information in a way that is neutral. It's evidence-based. If someone asks me my opinion, I will literally say, this is my personal opinion, or, you know, here's a hashtag real life conversation. And let's sort of just dialogue a little bit about this. But I'm 100% clear it's not up to me to say how anybody's labor goes, what their birth plan should or shouldn't look like. Um, because ultimately, that's me taking the opportunity for them to empower themselves and their choices out of the equation, um, which is really what I'm committed to. So it's been a fascinating full circle journey for me. And I'm really glad that I'm here today versus, you know, sitting inside of that judgment. And a lot of those, I think, unmet expectations or misperceptions about the way things should go for myself and or for other women. I think that's awesome that you have enough self-awareness and you know, humbleness to come to a different view and place on it. And I think that that's the answer for a lot of women that are maybe faced with other people, strangers or, or well-meaning family members or friends kind of weighing in on what their birth should look like <laughs> of just saying, you know, hey, thanks for your opinion or thanks for your judgments about what hasn't happened yet, <laughs> but I need to figure this out on my own. I think that that's awesome to help women have a, a formulated answer <laughs> to what they can say when they're approached by somebody else. 100% without that, like that instant that we get where we're like, oh, I'm doing it wrong, or oh, I have to defend, or oh, you know, they think this is silly or stupid or woo woo or whatever. It's like, you know what? Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, yeah, you know, appreciate that and moving on, right? Because Every woman is different. Every birth is different. Every baby is different. Every husband is different. You know, we're all navigating this with an opportunity to find what our journey gets to look like, right? Yeah. And just because one birth was one way, if you're having, you know, secondary children doesn't have to mean that it's going to be the same way for that child either. I, you know, I had a similar experience with the very first birth that I saw and I guess I would describe myself in the beginning of working with fertility and pregnancy women as very crunchy granola. <laughs> and now thanks to experiences of other women, uh, because I have not had my own birth story, um, but have been honored and humbled to have witnessed so many of other women, I now think of myself as trail mix, somewhere in between <laughs> crunchy granola and straight M&Ms. <laughs> I love that. You know, the first birth I saw happened to be twins, and the mom was a patient of mine that um, was not supposed to be able to get pregnant, according to her Western medical doctor, due to PCOS, and she, of course, had already done it once, and then she was coming to me for neck pain, of all things, and she landed pregnant with twins, and she grabbed me by the collar one treatment and said, you will be at my birth. <laughs> I said, no, 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 no. You're going to be in a hospital. Like, no way. I don't belong in a hospital. <laughs> and 
She said, no, no, I've been through this before. I love my husband dearly. He does not calm me down. You do. There is a book or a course. I'm sure you have six months. Figure it out. You will be there. (laughs) So... I did because I, I, you know, I love this patient very much. And, you know, I was very green and eager to learn as much as I could. And I had this amazing experience of just going to the, the hospital and as her, you know, her quote unquote doula and doing acupressure. I didn't even bring needles because I was certain that a hospital was going to tell me no, which, you know, now I go in with needles and the triage nurses are like, hey, so glad you're here. Can you calm her down? <laughs> so it's it's changed quite a bit. But, you know, I, I remember too having this view of like, oh, every woman, you know, should be able to do this at home or in a birthing center if she wants to, which I do think is still true for healthy women without complications. But, you know, a majority of my practice is advanced maternal age and, you know, had been trying for years and and did does have a lot of complications. And so they're they're probably not candidates for that, right? Um, and the universe had this beautiful way of setting that up for me and watching this birth. And um, not only did I get to see what acupressure did without even needles to the contractions because she was hooked up to monitors, but then I you know, I got to scrub in and stand behind the OB for the catch. And keep in mind, I've never seen a baby be born. And the first baby comes out. And though I've never seen one, I am fairly certain that this baby is the wrong color. (laughs) And what happened is he basically, he came out in two pushes and had a spontaneous pneumothorax where he just had a tiny tear in in his lungs. And this team of NICU nurses descended upon him like angels and got him breathing right away. But the really fascinating part was that as I'm like trying to have nerves of steel and a poker face because I'm dad and mom are looking at me like what's going on? They can't see anything. I just see the mother sit up and it was like the embodiment of the divine feminine. She looked at the doctor and I and was like, there's another baby in there that needs to come out. Let's do this. (laughs) And it was like so just the power of a mother, right? (laughs) And so here comes the second baby, cord wrapped around the neck. And there were no indications during her labor. There was no abnormal heart rates or drops or anything like that. And that OB was, you know, she did this maneuver where she like spun that baby around, got that cord off, whacked him on the back. All of a sudden she was the right color. Um, They were both girls. And I was just in awe. Like I I was so deeply humbled and so grateful to have been in a hospital. (laughs) Like just that made me go back to the drawing board on what I thought I believed and what I thought I knew, even though I had never had that experience. And I think that's so important because even if you have your own experience, it's going to be different for every woman, right? Yes. And I love, I love that story. I think it's so beautiful. And I think sometimes our, you know, our perceptions or our, you know, attachments to the way we we think things should look are actually for the most part they're usually rooted in super beautiful intentions, right? Like we of course want women to have the most beautiful, gorgeous experiences possible, right? And Usually that means it's without a lot of medical intervention, right? I mean, we would love for it to go that way. But yeah, there's a time and a place, you know, for doctors and a a medical team and 
to be able to witness, you know, life like that and have that doctor bring life to that baby or, you know, ensure that that baby was okay in that moment. I mean, it's, that's as beautiful as a mom having a natural water birth, you know, I mean, that's part of her story and that baby's story. So it really, I think context, you know, and being willing to be in the moment present to what's happening and navigating that with as much, you know, power as possible, because yeah, just like we said in our last time together, we can't control any of this but we can control how we show up to what's happening. Right. And there's, there's, if you're listening, there's no right decision. It's making the best of what's happening in the moment. And it all comes down to your ability to be clear and confident so you can make the best decision for you, your baby, and your partner. 100%. All right. So your series, your class that you're having, it starts December 7th, which is right around the corner. And that'll be about a week after this episode airs, but you do privates. So if someone can't make the group session or they need to catch up, right, they can reach out to you. That is 100% correct. I love doing private sessions. Um, so absolutely. Okay. Yep. All right. I just wanted to get that in there in case you're listening and going, oh, this is already passed. These will continue. Um, yeah. So- I will say, too. I mean, I understand it's a it's a busy time, right? We're heading yes. into the holidays, um, and depending on due dates, usually. So we usually have consecutive sessions running back to back. So even if somebody jumps in, let's say, kind of at class two or three, um, even though the classes do build on on each other, they can also take like class one and two of the next series if that works for their due date. So we've created it so that there's a lot of options so that women can get what they need. Women and their partners can get what they need. Awesome. So last week we talked a lot about the importance of having a good working relationship with your caregivers and good dialogue around intervention. Um, But one of the things that we didn't talk about was we didn't talk about how to use the Bishop score as a way to assess if elective intervention is okay for you. And and I want to emphasize elective because there's a, a difference between elective and medical, medically necessary induction, right? There is. Mm-hmm. And this is really important for um, all of you listening to, um, to know as an access to really being um, in the driver's seat of how this goes. So the first thing I always say is that if, you know, anytime any sort of intervention is discussed, the first thing that needs to be looked at is, you know, is mom okay and is baby okay? Um, And if the answer to those questions are yes, then we're most likely not talking about a medical, medically necessary intervention, right? It's something that could just be suggested because maybe labor has stalled or, you know, certain other factors are, are part of the equation that, has a medical team um, say, you know, I think we need to do something at this point. If the answer to the question is no, mom isn't okay or baby, there's a question about baby, then there's really no other um, thing to do other than discuss what the options are and and get in action around it, right? Mm-hmm. Where the Bishop score comes into play is if we are talking about more of an elective intervention type scenario. So this is usually where we see where a a doc may say, okay, you know, you're you're, um, 40 weeks or you're getting close to 40 weeks or maybe you're a little over 40 weeks and, you know, they want to get things started or... Um, there may be a concern about maternal age. Again, if mom and, and baby are okay, you know, there's some uh, 
there's some differing opinions, I think, out there about moms that are over 35 and how long they should be allowed to grow their babies. Again, I am of the personal opinion that if there's no issues happening with mom or baby, let that baby stay in there for as long as possible. They know they'll come out when they're meant to. Um, but if an induction, which is essentially, you know, saying, hey, we want to get labor started and or moving faster um, is discussed, the Bishop score is something that um, a mom and her partner can request as an access to discerning how ready the body uh, is to go into labor. And so essentially what we're talking about here is it's a few different measurements that the docs can do. Um, It's a few, it's some tests, right? So a few things that they can check with a physical exam very easily, very quickly to determine whether the body is ready or not. So how dilated the cervix is, obviously the more open, the better. Um, how short the cervix is. So what we mean by that is it, the, the cervix actually looks like a neck. And then as it starts to thin during labor or in those last few weeks of pregnancy, um, it gets shorter. So obviously the shorter, the better. We want that to thin and efface um, so that there's a space for baby to come out. Um, so the shorter the cervix, the better. How far down the baby is um, in the <clears throat> in the pelvis, we call it the station. So if baby's head is dropped to edis- the farther down the baby's head is, the better the likelihood of an induction doing its thing because baby's already more engaged in, in, um, in that birth canal. The consistency of the cervix. So again, whether it's firm or soft, we want that cervix to be, cervix to be nice and soft. Um, versus firm. If it's firm, body's kind of telling us, hey, I'm, I'm not ready yet, right? I haven't gotten there yet. Um, and then the position of the cervix as well, whether it's pointing forwards or backwards, and for the purposes of m- these measurements, pointing forwards is better. So each of those categories gets a certain score based on where they're at from a dilation perspective or how thin the uterus is, where the baby is, in, I'm sorry, the cervix is, where the baby is in station. And what we're essentially looking for in first-time moms, we want a score of eight or higher at least. And what that means is if that bishop score is an eight or higher, we, we can say with, with more certainty that if an induction um, takes place, that the likelihood of a vaginal delivery um, is much higher um, and the likelihood of a cesarean is much lower. If we see a score of a six or lower, um, at that point, there's an op- opportunity for mom and dad to both say, my body is, is signaling that it's not ready. And the likelihood of inducing with a score of six or lower of a vaginal birth goes way down and the likelihood of a cesarean birth goes up. And um, in one of the links that we'll post, it has a chart that actually shows the variations between the bishop score and the likelihood of a cesarean, as well as the amount of time that um, that labor could take if a score is right, which let's face it, that's important. So this is a really powerful tool. Again, if all of a sudden it feels like, you know, you're having these things kind of come at you like we need to do this. You can say, whoa, 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 let's take a step back here. Let's kind of get a sense for what my body is saying, right? And then make a choice that um, feels more powerful versus feeling like maybe you have to do something. I've had some of my students 
um, use this as a tool and as a, as a dialogue even prior to getting to this point. So tell me a little bit about how your staff, you know, takes into consideration the Bishop score when it comes to an induction. I mean, what an incredible conversation to, to get into with your doctor, right? How, you know, what, how likely, you know, are, is your team to do a Bishop score prior to an induction? Is that something I have to ask for, you know? Because again, we want this to be as as empowered a relationship as possible, as powerful of one, as open. We don't want to be at odds with our care providers. We want to be in partnership with them, you know, if we're in a hospital scenario. So Bishop score is a really powerful tool. Okay. So in regards to the Bishop score, that study and the link that we're going to publish has 6,721 participants in it. So this isn't a small study. <laughs> And I think that's really important to share. I would agree. I would definitely agree. Um, that's a pretty large sample size for sure. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about just, you know, a couple hundred moms here. And you mentioned the, you kind of touched briefly on the the differencing of opinion and advanced maternal age and how long your baby is allowed to incubate. Um, and there there is differing opinions. The Western medical opinion tends to be that if you are past 35 years of age, there can be some hardening of the placenta, and then that's difficult to measure. The only way that you would see that show up is if the baby had declined in its growth rate. And by the time you, by the time that's happened, you're in some some danger there. So I do think that there is sometimes cause for concern for that. And again, it comes back to just really understanding your body and, and looking at the baby on ultrasound and measurements and trying to understand, is it progressing in the same direction? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, again, getting grounded information, right? So yes, having those ultrasounds, whatever those, you know, those checks are, right? And just getting that data, and then making choices from there, right? You know, anytime we put any sort of, I think, um, umbrella over, you know, a group of women or an age or, you know, this... We just need to make sure that the information is evidence-based. And I always encourage my moms to get a sense for when, if they're met with, will the risks go up by X percent, you know, find out what the original risks were, right? And then what that additional risk on top of it is. Again, in a lot of cases, it can be small percentages. Obviously, if you fall into that percentage, it's it's serious. Um, But just be meeting those conversations with as much groundedness as possible. It can get scary when you start talking about risks and percents and all of that, but really being willing to ask those additional questions. Well, what is the risk in the first place and what's the additional risk, right? Um, yeah. The risk is actually um, stillborn, which, you know, is pretty scary. Like that's never a word that any mother or wants to hear, right? And so I think that knowing that ahead of time is really important instead of catching you off guard because there is a lot of uh, fear-based decisions that are made in those types of words. And, you know, and I have I have felt a placenta that has started to harden and it was in a woman that was not of advanced maternal age. However, that baby had been in there for very close to 42 weeks. Um, and it was fascinating, you know, that the midwife pointed out like, here, you can feel the difference. And it was very hard and granular. Like you could feel where it had just basically said, I'm done. I quit <laughs> in this part. And it was a very small part of the placenta. Um, but for me, it was again, one of those experiences that went, oh, 
this is what they're talking about in the research. And I can see where this would, you know, of course, cause harm. You basically stop feeding your baby. So yeah, again, knowing your body and your health risks and, you know, are are you just barely 35 or, you know, are you a healthy 35? Are you a healthy 40? That, that kind of a thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So we're going to talk about my favorite, <laughs> my favorite now, <laughs> part of, part of your class four, there's also pushing and so many other things in there. Yes. Um, but in, in class four, you do talk about, um, ways to naturally get labor going. So if someone is, um, facing that induction conversation, um, I don't like using the word induce when it comes to getting labor going naturally, because it literally, I feel my pelvis tense up. (laughs) You tell where I hold that stress in my body, right? Um, so, you know, and I'm a little biased towards acupuncture and acupressure and herbs because that's the, those are the tools that I use every day. Um, but I want to hear some of your tricks. Yes, absolutely. So, (laughs) um, I love what you said about, yeah, induce and that like freezing, right? It's like, don't tell me what to do. I will do this when I'm ready, right? (laughs) Yes. For me. Um, So, yes. So I too am a huge fan um, and I've seen it work. Um, Acupuncture, of course, herbs, um, acupressure. In my class, I do go over a couple different um, acupressure points to use to help um, kickstart labor, as I like to put it, or encourage, right, versus that word induce. Um, One of the other things that I am a huge fan of, um, and not just if we're talking about trying to get a a labor kickstarted, but just in terms of care throughout pregnancy is chiropractic. And excuse me, specifically working with a chiropractor that is um, trained in the Webster technique specifically for pregnant women that works on those um, round ligaments and adjusting the sacrum um, so that if anything is, let's say, twisted or torqued, right, as those round ligaments pull on that pelvis, um, what that's essentially doing if we're out of alignment is we're, we're squishing space for that baby and we're not allowing baby to drop down into that vertex, head down, fabulous position we want them to be in. Um, And so with consistent adjustment throughout pregnancy and or at the end, sometimes those little tweaks can help to get a a mom's body more aligned and open so that um, baby's head can drop a little bit and then start to do what it needs to do to help um, instigate labor. Yeah. And in theory, that would increase your bishop score, right? Yes, exactly. Because then baby drops down. So baby's head is further down in station, um, which would then potentially, hopefully, you know, apply some pressure to the cervix, then releasing some of those prostaglandins, allowing the cervix to continue to thin and um, efface. So yes, absolutely. All right. So what do you think about nipple stimulation? <laughs> um, I think it's one of the most fun things that I get to talk about in my class. And I'm, you know, one of those people that just goes for it and puts it out there. Um, and I think it's awesome. I think it's a fun way for couples to, you know, if mom wants to do it on her own, that's great. But it's also obviously a fun way to instigate some intimacy and maybe some laughs, right, with, you know, mom and dad. But it's pretty magical um, when the nipples are stimulated. Um, oxytocin can be produced. And as we know, oxytocin is the hormone we need to help get that um, uterus contracting. So that's one of the more fun ways 
to stimulate labor versus, let's say, something like castor oil, which is awful. Um, yeah, not a big fan of that one. No, no. And I will say also just a, a kind of a just to go back and qualify this. Any anytime we start talking about natural ways to um, encourage labor to begin, it's it's definitely something you want to be in communication with your care provider about. You know, this isn't something that you do when you're like, I'm so full of this baby and I'm done and I want this baby out. We, you know, we really want to use this, you know, as a way to uh, potentially avoid medical intervention. Um, we certainly want to bring some comfort to mom, but it's something, you know, that, that um, need to be in communication with your care provider or midwives about castor oil. Um, what's fascinating about it is that it actually, when taken, it, it helps to stimulate that and I think um, mimic the prostaglandins that are um, present in labor. So it can actually help kind of kickstart and or mimic the presence of that in the body, which again, hopefully helps the, the cervix to get the memo and have it start to thin um, and efface a little bit. But it can also lead to some pretty significant evacuation, as I like to call it, of the bowels and it's terrible. Um, so, you know, to me, that's probably a very last resort. And I certainly wouldn't do it without knowing um, all of all of the implications of that. Yeah, acupressure, chiropractic, sexual relations with your partner, and herbs from a qualified herbalist that is skilled in pregnancy and labor. Um, I would try all of those first. Agreed. And um, the trick I always like to share: why sex? I think back before my, uh, um, you know, becoming a teacher, <laughs> I think I thought maybe sex meant that something was getting poked or something and maybe helping to, you know, make things happen. But it's actually the prostaglandins in semen um, that help to start to kick labor off. So again, another fun way to hopefully get things started. Awesome. And there is actually a link in the uh, show notes, and that can be found at ladypotions.com backslash episode 14. That includes a downloadable PDF for actual pressure points that help encourage labor. I give this to all of my patients to take home and share with their partners. Um, and, you know, based on where they are at, I tell them where to start. So if you are not dilated yet, you want to start with those dilation points. And I certainly cannot take credit for this. I did not create this. This was created by the magnificent Deborah Betts, uh, who is an acupuncturist in New Zealand. And she shares just so much more, so much information with other acupuncturists and the public at large that I really can't thank her enough for her clinical generosity. Um, I've had the chance to learn directly with her and some other my heroes at um, the infertility, the International Fertility Symposium in Vancouver for the last four years. Um, and her breadth of knowledge is just it's so vast and so amazing. Um, and I believe that she's even created a uh, an app with acupressure. So if you're somebody that needs video, not just black and white medical diagrams, um, you there's a link to where to get that app as well on your phone. So if your partner is, you know, is comfortable with technology, then that's one way to make him more even more comfortable or her more comfortable. Um, all right. So can we talk about what happens when your water breaks? Because I have so many women that have this picture in their minds that they're going to be like Charlotte and Sex in the City standing on a busy street like Fifth Avenue and literally start gushing water all over. 
<laughs> yes, I think all of us probably have that image in mind because that's that's what we've seen, right? Not just from Charlotte, but in most of the movies, we see the water break and then all of a sudden this rush and labor starts and it's crazy. And um, what I find fascinating is that it is a very small percentage percentage of women that actually have their water break in that fashion. It's really only around 10 to 12% that where their water will break when they're not already in pretty active labor. Um, and I will tell you that I've had several women in my classes that have actually, that are in that 10 to 12% that have had their water break prior to. Um, so, you know, I find that fascinating from my own personal sample size there. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's typically a small percent that, that has that happen before labor in most cases it's the um, moving into the more intense um, phases of stage one labor that will actually rupture um, the bag of waters um, or that, that amniotic sac. You know, whether it's, again, the uterus contracting, some women will actually um, go even into the pushing stage um, before their, their water breaks. And in small percentages, some women, um, the water never breaks and their babies are born in call, which I find very beautiful where the baby is born in the sack. Yeah, I've not seen that in person. I've seen it in pictures and it's just so incredible to look at for a hot moment. Totally. Oh my goodness. Yes. Um, I can share from my own personal experience that I remember, I think um, I was in, I was pushing with my, my daughter and felt this <clears throat> like more intense kind of feeling. And I literally said, what was that? And they said, your water just broke. And I thought that was pretty fascinating. I'm like, Oops, something else just happened. Um, so yeah, so most women are not going to experience that sex in the city, you know, moment. Um, if you do, here's what is very helpful. Um, so anytime when we're talking about water breaking, I like to use the acronym COAT. So if your water breaks, COAT, C-O-A-T, See, the first thing you want to look for is color. Um, what we're looking for is, is really not a color. We're looking for a clearish fluid. If the color has any sort of tint to it, if it's a greenish or a brown, then we know that's the presence of meconium, which is baby's first poop. Um, and it's certainly something that it can lead to some um, complications or um, a little bit of danger for baby in some scenarios. So um, it's something just to be on the lookout for. So when your water breaks, you want to be in communication with your care provider, midwives, and let them know these four things. So color odor, um, we're not really looking for an odor. A lot of times um, what women will say it, it smells like is it's, it's kind of um, sweet in some ways. Fleshy is another word for it. If you, know, if you don't really know what fleshy smells like, that might not be helpful. But we're essentially looking for, we're not looking for a, a pungent odor. If we're, if we're um, smelling an odor, that could mean there's maybe some infection or something going on. So again, that's what to look for. Amount. This one always cracks me up when I talk about this because we're, we're not talking about like, hey, can you you know get a measuring cup and figure out you know what what this amount is? Um, what we're really looking for, and it can vary for women. In some cases, it can be kind of a, a small trickle, almost um, kind of. In some women, it can be a gush. Um, so what we want to we want to look for is if it's let's say a spot on the bed you know, is it four inches in diameter? or Is it six inches in diameter? Or if it's, you know, on your skirt or something, same thing. Um, you know, is it yeah, is it a small kind of trickle? Or was it a gush just to give them a sense for your your care provider a sense for what's happening. And then time, 
time does matter um, more so in a, in a medical environment. The clock starts ticking at a certain point. They get a little um, more, well, we, not even just medical. It's important to make sure that baby comes within a, um, a good amount of time because the longer the water has been broken, the higher the instance of infection. So the clock does matter in terms of what time. Yeah, I have a lot of women that will say, did I just pee myself or was that just a little bit of my water breaking and they're, they're become obsessed with trying to figure out whether it was their water or like my now peeing myself. <laughs> right? yes. And part of that can be if the baby's head's real low, it can obstruct some of the fluid from coming out, right? Yes, that is correct. So there can be kind of an initial, you know, sort of leakage. And then as things progress, then there can be an, a later gush as we move, you know, further into labor. But yeah, I always say you'll know the difference, um, but there certainly is that first question like, wait, what's happening here? I I don't have the sensation of of peeing, but I'm leaking. So yeah, (laughs) Um, it's good to know. Okay. So now on to the very hot button subject of placentas. (laughs) Yes. Um, So we had some interesting dialogue on this prior to this recording. And because there's just so much mixed information out there, right? Um, especially rather recently. So, what is your take on placentas? And and we'll kind of dialogue about that because I think that this again, this is a conversation, not a right or wrong answer. So, when you had babies, what what did you think about using a placenta, or um, what has your experience been in classes with women that? have taken a placenta dried encapsulation or otherwise? So for me, during my own pregnancy, when it came to the to my placenta, and I will tell you that I had a lot of, you know, girlfriends and people that referred to me back then as woo woo and, you know, crunchy granola as well. And so I think some of this came up in conversation, like, you know, what, what are you going to do with your placenta? And Mostly at the time for me as a new, you know, pregnant mom and not really knowing many answers to this, I had heard, you know, about some women, um, you know, burying it, taking it home and burying it in their backyard or by a tree. And I will tell you um, that that really resonated for me. I thought that that was beautiful, um, just really not disposing of this beautiful organ that had helped to keep and sustain my babies in my womb um, and having it be part of, you know, my home, right? And and back to the earth. It just felt so, that felt so beautiful to me. And I will say it probably occurred as a little bit of a, a wives tale. I didn't do any research, to be honest. I just kind of heard of it, right? Passed down. And because of my complications where for me, both of my placentas decided that they were not going to come out with both of my babies. And I literally joke now that they were just really committed to their jobs and just did not want to exit the premises. They were just, they wanted to stay in there. Um, I didn't at the time have the option to do any of that. I think at that point for me, it was like, get them out of my body and that's it. I'm done. But looking back, you know, and again, I think that's what's so be- been so beautiful about my own journey and coming to healing terms with it is that I can see where 
there might have been some options for additional information back there back then or research or non-judgment, right? And I might have looked into it a little bit more. So for me, that was, you know, what I would have considered, I will say from an encapsulation perspective, some of my, even though I have erred and still do tend to err on the natural, you know, side of things, um, I probably back then thought it was a little woo-woo too. And and for some reason that didn't necessarily resonate with me. But as I've, you know, moved through my journey and becoming a teacher and working with with women, it's something that's that's done very often, you know, in terms of encapsulating the placenta. And it can be very beneficial. Some of the the research shows that it can help from um, the perspective of helping to balance mom's hormones that much more quickly, help to reduce postpartum um, depression. It can help with healing. Um, and in some ways, like I, as I'm saying this, I'm like, it makes sense. It's part of our body. It was part of the process. So in a way, it's like, you know, that's kind of a natural next step. And there's many animals, obviously, that still do that. They eat their placentas. But again, I think, you know, it's still somewhat where it's come somewhat mainstream, I think, in the in the natural communities. I do think that it's still looked at potentially as a little woo-woo or a little out there. And I, you know, what I'm really committed to, even just in learning more from you too, about some of its roots and, and where this tradition has come from and you know what it's steeped in. I think there's a really awesome opportunity to again look at it from a neutral perspective and get all sides of things. Um, you know, if, if that's something that you're considering, it it shouldn't necessarily be classified or characterized characterized as a as a woo woo thing. It's an option, right? Just like drinking tea after pregnancy is an option. You know. Um, so I think there's just a really beautiful opportunity to take that wives' tale conversation out of it and, and look for yourself. And if it's something that even is just kind of an inkling in your mind or, you know, give yourself permission to research it um, and then make your choice from there versus maybe drawing, you know, assumptions based on where it seems like it would fit, whether that's a natural or a non-medical or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that your inclination to bury it, I don't think that that was based on wives' tale, and here's why. Um, I have one of the oldest compendiums on obstetrics uh, that's been translated from Chinese medicine, and in it, and this is like way, this is thousands of years ago, okay? This is when medicine still had its roots in a very shamanistic view, right? If you, it wasn't, there was no such thing as germ theory then. This was, if you got sick, it was because you offended your dead elders, right? And so <laughs> there are actual steps in this book about, you know, making sure that you bury your placenta under the correct tree facing the right direction and that there's a ritual involved with it. And so I do think that that idea of ritualizing and honoring the very thing that kept your baby alive inside of you and kept it from consuming more of your body than it did is actually really natural and imprinted on the DNA based on what humans have done. And so when I started to do research for this recording, because you know, I'm on the other side. Here I am steeped in, in traditional Chinese medicine. I can remember a time <clears throat> when you could buy encapsulated placenta in a bottle <laughs> from China, and it was prescribed for very dire, dire health concerns. Now, that is kind of scary, right? Because you're like, whose placenta is this, right? But that, that was very much a thing as much as 10 years ago, okay? And so a lot of people don't know that. 
So when I was going and doing research, because, you know, here I, I want to find, you know, what is true and, and, and what's belief, right? What was really kind of infuriating to me is that it seemed that there was this one article by an, an MD that had gone rather viral that was saying that women do not have the inclination to eat their placenta just because other mammals do, but humans don't. And that this was something that there, there was no historical evidence for and had not become popular until the 1970s. And that's simply not true. There is a lot of historical information in traditional Chinese medicine, uh, even down to recipes of, of how it's procured. I mean, it's in our Materia Medica, um, and it's said that dried placenta tonifies the liver and the kidneys. It augments essence. Essence is like basically your savings account of vital force and what you have to also pass down, by the way, to a second baby if you choose to have more. Uh, it tonifies chi and blood. It promotes lactation tonifies lung chi and kidney essence. So it, this is something that has been observed over thousands of years. You know, and then the other thing that he was saying in the article is he was pointing out that, you know, the the placenta is full of bacteria and how could that be safe to put bacteria back into your body? And I had to have a giggle because we are outnumbered 9 to 1 by other organisms than what cells that make up our bodies just, and most of that lives in our gut, right? So here I am thinking like, well, why, it's your placenta. Why wouldn't you put it back in, right? And sadly, you know, there, there's not a lot of research out there. There's a small um, promising bout of research and there's links again in the show notes to all of this um, of, of what is there and kind of pointing to what needs to be done. But it's a difficult subject to do research on because it's placenta, right? <laughs> so yeah, I, I think it's a, you know, come look at these links, let it kind of push you into an exploration of um, finding out for yourself if this feels right, right? And I would say if you do have any history of depression, um, if you are considering induction or maybe a C-section or something where there could be potential excess blood loss, um, that this would be a way to put that back and possibly stabilize your hormones and increase your chances of actually successfully lactating. There are some times when you wouldn't want to use a placenta, right? So if there were infection that cropped up and you would know that because you would have had a spike to fever and needed antibiotics or there would have been one of those kind of cardinal signs with the amniotic fluid that something was wrong. There's um, a positive test for HIV or hepatitis A, A, B, or C. Those are things that would say, hey, this is a possible danger to put the placenta back in, but you're going to know all of that. Your placenta can also um, safely be refrigerated for up to three days. Um, and most reputable um, placenta encapsulators, which are typically doulas, um, a lot of them now to, to basically kind of overcome this claim that it's not a uh, safe process or it's not a clean process of how they do it, they recommend that they give you the kit to biologically secure your placenta and take it home from the, the hospital, which by the way, you have to do this conversation beforehand. It has to be in your chart in most American hospitals. You can't just show up with a cooler and be like, hey, I want to take this home. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you know, with the extra chucks and stuff. <laughs> right. 
Um, and occasionally some hospitals do have the um, policy that they want to send it to pathology and look at it for 24 hours and that you just have to ask that it, you know, of course, remains refrigerated during that time and then it's returned to you. But a, a lot of those reputable encapsulators actually give you the kit they tell you or a loved one to take it home and then they come to your kitchen and they make it step by step in front of you so that you can see that it is in fact your placenta all of the materials that they use are disposable okay um and then and they, they cook it down with a dehydrator or on a low oven setting and they use certain herbs to warm it like ginger or chili um uh, traditionally we use um uh, ginger and donguai and uh, ruchong um, to help it actually make its way throughout the entire body. And then they, they put it in a bottle and they basically based on, again, how much blood loss did you lose? What are your hormones at? What's your lactation at? Then they prescribe a dosage. And a lot of women will, sometimes they'll start off in the very beginning taking like six pills at a time and then kind of titrate down. And then they'll save some of those pills for emergencies, like the stress of going back to work that can suddenly make your lactation drop. Or if there is this, you know, if you have a traumatic event where your baby's not sleeping for two weeks on end and you're at your wit's end and your hormones are changing, that's a time to reintroduce your own placenta. Um, so I do think that there is a lot more research that needs to be done, but, you know, a conversation needs to be had on the, the potential of what this could do versus, you know, for postpartum depression, are you going to go on Paxil? And, and not that that's not a, a viable option, but then what happens to your breast milk, right? And so, and of course, yes, keeping mother stable is outweighs the benefits of breastfeeding, but it, what if there was a step in between that could have, could be done, right? Totally. And I, so I just really, you know, as I was sitting here listening to you, I just, I was thinking, I think taking the, the labels off, right, is just so important. Um, what, and what I mean by that is, you know, what we're talking about in the world of placenta encapsulation and what it makes available is helping moms heal and recover, right? So we have, you know, that as an option. And then yes, we do have Paxil as an option. And I guess you could say in the world of, I mean, Paxil is quote unquote medical and, you know, placenta encapsulation is, is natural, right? It's, it's more on the natural side. But I think giving women permission to, again, look at all angles, right, without judgment, kind of going back to what I said earlier, that it isn't woo-woo and it isn't crazy, <clears throat> even if, you know, there's feedback that says that it is, or even if there's medical studies that in this case show one baby out of however many having a complication, but really looking at all of the data, that's that's what this whole process of being pregnant and, and laboring and being a parent and being a human is. I mean, it's all about listening for what resonates and giving ourselves permission to trust ourselves, right? So, I mean, everything that you just said is so grounded in, to me, I mean, it's fact, right? Or it, it's, it's, it makes sense, you know? So really allowing, it goes also goes back to that conversation of allowing. If we're so rigid or fixed or stuck in one way or thinking that it has to be a particular way versus giving ourselves permission to be open and listen and see kind of what 
what makes sense and allowing yourself to be guided in that direction. What a beautiful muscle to build, right? That relates to all areas of lives and relates to our parenting and the choices we're going to have to make. And I just think, you know, it's such a bigger conversation, right? Um, so no wonder we love placenta so much. Because, <laughs> right. I mean, it's at the heart of, of something so core to our peace of mind and ability to navigate this whole journey um, of pregnancy and, and labor and then after. So, All right. That brings us to the end. But it's just the beginning, the fourth trimester. Yeah. The thing nobody tells you about that's actually way harder than those 40 weeks of pregnancy, right? Yes. And it's, you know, I have, it's my fifth class. So it's the last class, right, in the series. And, um, you know, as I've, as much as I've gotten um, clear about how important educating moms and their labor partners about what to expect during labor and setting them up, you know, for that experience this fourth trimester, it's being set up for that, I think, is as critical, if not maybe even more. Um, and again, just from a personal perspective, you know, those first few years for me, even after having my kids, was so wrought with self-judgment and doubt. Um, woo, it took something for me to get my feet underneath me because I was so dealing with, well, what should I do? And what are my options? And breastfeeding and just all of the, the, just all of it, right? Do we sleep train? Do we co-sleep? Do we this? I mean, it's crazy. We live in such an, a world where there's so many different ways to do it that one can get really heady about it and start to doubt that inner knowing. So my, my, my fifth class about preparing for bringing baby home, I really kind of hone in on those first few weeks and getting moms and dads, a general understanding of what to expect actually in the first hour. Um, you know, what are some of the maybe tests or things that are kind of consistent in either a hospital setting or a home birth or a birth center birth? Um, and then the importance of, or the benefits of skin to skin contact, you know, as an option to really bond with mom and baby and even dad and baby, some skin to skin for them is, is beautiful too. Um, and how that impacts the breastfeeding relationship, if that's what moms are, are choosing to do. Um, I also talk about the fact that, you know, breastfeeding is, it's natural and that does not equal that it's easy. Um, I think that was the best advice that I was given and it's a hundred percent accurate. It's a new relationship. Baby and mama have instincts, but we're learning each other. We're figuring this out. So we talk about, you know, some basic latch techniques and positions to hold baby. And I don't go too crazy because again, some of this is also really experiential, right? So I don't want to overwhelm my moms and dads in this class. Um, I also talk very much about the benefits of having a postpartum plan put together. And what I mean by that is handling your animals, your appointments, your visitors, your lists, your to-dos. I go through all of that. Um, you know, one of the tips I'll give away right now that I think is so impactful is, you know, if you're having visitors come over and they come in and they're like, well, what can I do? Write a list and stick it on the refrigerator of things that are maybe rattling around in your mind or things that you know you need to get done. And if they say, can I help with anything? You send them to the refrigerator and say, check something off my list. Oh, I love that so much. Right? You can add to it. They can feel like they're helping. You don't have to rack your brain because let's face it, there's other things you're thinking about. 
it flexes the muscle of learning to ask for help and that you don't have to do it all because that's where you get burned out and shame yourself and spiral into the bitter end. right? 100%, right? We still bring the old version of ourselves and all of the things that we were doing to these first few weeks or even first few months. And it is a recipe for disaster because we're a mom now. We're, we're taking care of a baby. There's another little human in the picture. There's lack of sleep. There's all these things and we can't do things the way we used to. So yes, building that muscle and saying, you know, this is what would really be helpful um, can definitely help to lessen that amount of, of upset and judgment. Um, and I will say that, you know, those first few weeks, I think are just, you know, you kind of got to take it in like in bites. Right. Um, but I also just recently took a, a postpartum doula and infant care training because what I'm clear about is that because we're so we're in a world where there's so many different options and choices and we do label things and the cry it out and the this and the that again we really it's just it is an opportunity to get completely just anxietous and taken out and so um something to think about and many people don't know what a part of postpartum doula is and when we speak to postpartum doula we're not talking about a doula for moms that have postpartum anxiety or depression the term postpartum literally means like after baby is born right after you're done with your pregnancy right so it's really like a fourth trimester doula is probably a better way to put it you know we're in those first few months that um, a postpartum doula can come in and basically work with you in whatever capacity she is available for and what you need. Some do overnights where they do some baby care to help mom get some sleep. Some will come during the day and do a shift and be there for a few hours while you shower and you've got somebody watching that baby for you. So you're not hearing those phantom cries in the shower and, you know, wondering, oh my gosh, um, you know, what, I just need to shower for God's sakes. I need to brush my teeth. Um, they can help with a little bit of light meal prep. Um, they can help you navigate some of those choices. If you're going back to work, what does it look like from a breastfeeding perspective? How do we get baby maybe on a schedule? Or are we doing more of an attachment sort of go with the flow sort of thing? The postpartum doula can help you navigate those conversations with information that, again, is non-biased and non-judgmental. And I think that even if, you know, even if moms and dads have family members or friends they're all well in t- intentioned, but sometimes again, those ways of doing things or those judgments just naturally come with that. And so, having a postpartum doula is is kind of that just like in the middle, objective person that you can bring everything to and and count on just getting an answer. First and foremost, just having them be with you and understand where you're at. And then, if there's a need to help with something, they'll be guided by you and what your family needs. And to me, that is an incredible way to start off your life together as a family. Um, so I highly, highly recommend doing some research on it and you know, just looking into whether that could be something that might support um, a mom or a dad in their journey. I absolutely agree. That's one of my um, kind of go-to resources, especially if a couple doesn't have a lot of family or a lot of family that is um, helpful, shall we say. Uh, then, you know, having an unbiased outside source that you can have to help you and guide you and has the experience 
you know, either, you know, with their own training and, and as well as research and can kind of point you into to other experts when things come up. I think that's oftentimes more received or it's received better from someone like that than it is a well-meaning family member that there's just a lot of other junk and, you know, conditioning <laughs> in the relationship. And we, we may not always understand what a well-meaning family member is trying to tell us, but we, we might get it from a postpartum doula totally. much easier. Totally. Well, I can't thank you enough for sharing, you know, three hours of your life with our listeners and all the work that you've done to create these courses and to just help motherhood be a more pleasant journey for all of those that come in contact with you. If you're listening, I encourage you to uh, take one of Dawn's classes. You can reach her at Empowered birth series at gmail.com. Um, or even if you're not local in the St. Pete, Tampa Bay area, you know, to reach out to her and see if there's something that can be done virtually for your circumstance. Uh, the, the show notes again, found at ladypotions.com backslash episode 14 are filled with more links and downloads to things than we've ever had in any other episode. So and there's just, there's so much information, you know, truly we could talk for six hours, um, but we want to thank you because we know time is your most precious asset and we hope that we have given you information that you can use right away. So thank you so much, Dawn. I greatly appreciate it. Mm, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be able to put this out there to the world and, and partner with you. And I'm, I'm honored to be a part of your journey and in your circle and, you know, helping you to also do more of what you love and are committed to. So thank you so much. Hey, being a mom is the most important role you'll ever have and the hardest. <laughs> That's right. I always say thank goodness for wine. <laughs> wine. Wine is medicinal in small amounts, ladies. It's a blood mover according to Chinese medicine. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Thank you to everyone. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Fertile Minds Radio, hosted at www.ladyportions.com, where you'll find past episodes, show notes, and free meditations. If you've benefited from what you've heard, leave a comment or review so it makes it easier for others to find this valuable wisdom. Let's help elevate each other. Thanks for listening.